Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think this is a little bit louder. Are we okay? Does it sound okay? It's okay? Um, we're studying the 24th chapter. I think he's got it there. Um, the 24th chapter of Matthew. And we've been studying it in conjunction with the book of the Revelation. And the reason is because there's so much of it that's tied in together. And so it's important to read these various sections of Scripture uh, together so that we can uh, grasp a little better some of the finer points that are, that are being made. And uh, I'd like for you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And I'd like to remind you that there's actually two comings that are addressed in this 24th chapter. One is where the Lord does not visibly return. That's for the rapture of the church. He doesn't actually uh, come back to the earth. We go up to meet Him in the air. And so this is, a, is very distinct the way it's presented in Scripture. And so um, the second coming of Jesus Christ is written in Scripture uh, preserving that distinction. And we find it also here in the 24th chapter. But if you'll look with me at verse 25, we'll just begin reading there. We'll see what actually parallels with what's revealed in the book of the Revelation, which is actually the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that in the 19th chapter, which is where we actually ended our, our studies before we jump back over here to Matthew's Gospel. But reading in Matthew chapter 24, at verse 25, Behold, I have told you before, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. And so the Lord is making it very clear that there are going to be people that are talking about the second coming and they're not going to know what they're talking about. And so he's making it very clear that there's going to be no question about his second visible coming to the to the, the earth. Because he says in verse 27, For as the lightning shineth, or excuse me, for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Well, one application that's very legitimately applied uh, concerning this 28th verse, uh, for wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together, is, is a reference to the great slaughter that's going to take place when Jesus Christ does return. Because it's going to be in great wrath. And we'll take a look at that a little bit closer in a, in a minute. But in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now this is describing events in the actual seven years of tribulation. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man. That language never applies to the rapture of the church. It never does. It only applies to the visible second coming of Jesus Christ, which is at the end of the tribulation period. So 
Again, verse 30, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in the heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So we'll, we'll stop reading there, and now I'd like for you to turn to Revelation chapter 19. Because what we've just read has its uh, uh, counterpart, what you might say, in the revelation that John gives us in chapter 19 of Revelation. Um, if you begin reading with me at verse 11, And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And that's the church that are following him on these white horses. But we're not doing anything. We're just following. He does everything. And I'm going to show you that in just a minute. He does everything alone. Absolutely alone. Verse 15, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Now this is a reference back to Matthew 24, and that verse we just read where uh, the eagles come, uh, wherever the carcass is, that's where the, car the, the eagles are going to gather. This, this is a parallel to that statement. It's, it has to do with slaughter. It's going to take place. There's going to be dead bodies stacked up all over the place by the millions of people. Verse 18, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men both free and bond, both small and great. And so we'll, we'll stop reading there. And I'd like for you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63 because this is a passage that um, needs to be read in conjunction with these that we've just looked at. Isaiah um, chapter 63 and we'll begin reading at verse 1 <clears throat> who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah this that is glorious in his apparel uh, traveling in the greatness of his strength I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. But then there's a question. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments, like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Now notice the language. This is God himself, Jesus Christ, 
saying, I have trodden the winepress alone. You need to make a little circle around that word alone because Jesus Christ died alone on Calvary's cross. Alone. He was the only one in the universe that could pay our sin debt. And so he had to die and we could have no part in that redemption by works. It's very important to understand the word alone uh, eliminates any contribution from anyone. And so we're saved by grace, not of works. And so man has nothing whatsoever to contribute to our redemption in the way of turning over a new leaf, starting to go to church or read the Bible or go out and witness or give money to the church. We have absolutely nothing to contribute to the salvation that God has given us. It is the gift of God. The day that you contribute to a gift, it's no longer a gift. If someone brings you something and says, I've got a gift for you, and you reach into your pocket to pull out some money, that's an insult. Even in our everyday life, that's an insult. And for us to think that we can contribute anything to this uh, amazing gift of God, which is eternal life. The word alone applies to the cross of Calvary. But we need to understand that the Lord is developing a huge contrast here. And He wants us to see what, he, what we did to Him in view of his investment in our souls because of the love, the great love that he has for us. But then at the other end of the spectrum, where he's not presented as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, but as the lion of the tribe of Judah coming back in wrath, he's going to take care of business alone. And he's going to reverse everything that happened to him at Calvary where we hated him and murdered him. Now he's coming to execute justice. And he is going to absolutely slaughter every person that turned away from him and rejected him. And so this is what's going on here in this uh, 63rd chapter of Isaiah. It's a prophecy of Revelation 19. And so you ought to make a note maybe in your Bible if you are uh, someone that does that uh, to just jot down Revelation 19 because it's the parallel. It's the actual point of fulfillment of this prophecy right here. So verse 3, once again, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. Now notice this, he puts tremendous emphasis on this. There was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. And I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. And the year of my redeemed is come. I want you to think about Samson, who was an Old Testament type of Jesus Christ. This, uh, this strong man of the Old Testament that had supernatural strength that with the jawbone of an ass uh, stacked up on heaps 
a thousand Philistines. Uh, now I want you to think about what a man would look like. A furious warrior like Samson with the jawbone of an ass butchering people. I mean just hitting them with this supernatural strength. Think about the blood that would be splattered upon his garments. I'm telling you, if we could go back and see what Samson looked like after he got through with that, it would be uh, a prefigure, what you might say, of Jesus Christ as we see it right here in Isaiah 63. Samson is a type of Jesus Christ and his vesture dipped in blood. Then look at verse 5 of Isaiah 63. And I looked, and notice the emphasis once again, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. So here again, Isaiah 63 is a parallel passage in the Old Testament of our studies in Revelation chapter 19. So Chapter 19 is the visible second coming of Jesus Christ to the world. But he's coming with a totally different character than the world has ever seen him before because there's no mercy, there's no grace, there's no forbearance, there's no patience. He's come to a point where there is absolutely no remedy but wrath. No remedy but wrath. There's nothing else that can be done. He has removed every conceivable barrier in all that preceded this point in time in an effort to reach people to the end they might be saved because God could foresee the future of every human will of all humanity that had ever been born, he could see their future destiny, but that foreknowledge of being able to see these things was not determinative, what you might say, in that it caused people with their free will to do what he foreknew. And so it's critically important for us to understand the meaning of words. Um, foreknowledge has nothing to do with cause. Foreknowing something does not cause anything. But you cannot really understand the attributes of God and, and somehow or other dissect foreknowledge in such a way that it, it uh, changes our perspective of God. And this is exactly what happens when it comes to all the misunderstanding by the so-called Calvinist, Calvinist uh, who do not understand what we're talking about right now uh, as we learn it from Scripture because this is what the Bible teaches what I'm telling you right now God foreknows how can you have a, a book of Bible prophecy that tells the future before it happens with rigid accuracy and then somehow or other take away from that or somehow or other twist 
the character of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, and his not being willing that any should perish but all come to repentance and somehow or other take foreknowledge and define it in such a way that somehow or other he's at fault for the way people chose to be. That is absurd. And it's evil. But it's the extremes that people will go to to place blame at the feet of the Creator God. And so the Calvinists will teach this. They actually teach that uh, Esau had no real choice. Because before they were even born and had done anything, good or evil, God had foreordained that Esau would go to hell and Jacob would go to heaven. You're talking about a serious twisting of the truth and demeaning of the character of God. Now that's it right there. And it, it manifests the deceit of the human heart and trying to take eternal truth and make it fit human reason the way we think. Now that's a big mistake. You cannot do that. Because God's thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways are not our ways. And so we have to sit with Him and learn to reason by His Word and His Word alone and not try to take His Word and privately interpret it in such a way that it fits our construction rather than his. That's a huge mistake. And so, um, my point is, and I hope we will forever remember it, foreknowledge has nothing to do with cause. Just because you foreknow something doesn't mean that you cause it. I, I gave the kids in school years ago an illustration that I, it's maybe <laughs> uh, a puny illustration, but I think that you can you can grasp. I was trying to make it so that young minds could get hold of it, but let's just suppose that you were up on top of a hill, and down below, as you look way down below, you saw this this road, and. Uh, and then up ahead, there was a, a big oak tree. But right there at that big oak tree, right about here, there was a very sharp turn, a curve. A sharp curve that came out this way. And you were up there, and you looked down and you saw this automobile traveling down that highway at night with the lights on. And they were traveling at a at a high rate of speed, let's just say 100 miles an hour. But you are aware of the, the layout, and you know all about the road. Maybe you live there. You, you're aware that up ahead is a sharp curve, and there's a big oak tree there, and this person is traveling a hundred miles an hour, and so you reason in your mind, if that person doesn't slow down, they're not going to make it around that curve. They're going to hit that oak tree. But you got to slow down to about 15, 20 miles an hour to make it around that curve. And obviously this person doesn't understand the consequences of what they are choosing to do. But here you are, you're up here and you're looking down at the situation and you see what's happening. And you foreknow that if they don't change their will about the speed that they're traveling, they're going to crash into that oak tree. Now here's the question. Does the man up on the hill cause the accident? just because he foreknows what's going to happen? And the answer is absolutely not. He doesn't cause anything. He just knows. 
Well, this is the way God has revealed Himself in His Word. He knows the future as good as the past and as good as the present and what's taking place right now. He knows. And so the way God proves His deity is by forecasting uh, everything that's going to happen for the remainder of future history. And we got it right here in the Bible. And so we're reading future history right now. But the fact that God knows these things and has written these things has nothing to do with free will. And so free will is exactly that. It's free will. If God somehow or other manipulates free will, it's no longer free will. <laughs> I mean, how, how complicated is that? I mean, to me, that's not complicated at all. Free will is free will. And what destroys a person is the freedom to choose. So this is something that we uh, in the ministry here at Calvary have heard uh, taught so many times and we teach it in the school that the greatest threat you'll ever have is you and your freedom to choose. And so uh, God tells us and this is the part that's predestinated. So let me throw this in because this, this is very important. Predestination is true doctrine. But you've got to understand what's predestinated. Let me tell you what it is. What's predestinated is blessing. Now listen. Blessing if you choose right. But what's also predestinated is cursing and regret if you choose wrong. And so, what is the difference between right and wrong? Well, to the law, to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Isaiah 8.20 It's one of the most important verses in the Bible. God defines the outworking and outcome of right choices versus wrong choices. God foreknew that Jacob would choose right. He foreknew it. That didn't mean that he caused Jacob to choose what was right. He didn't. He did what he does to every man. This is the light. Listen, this is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 9. This is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jacob was one of the people that received that light. So was Esau. Jacob received it. Jacob re uh, Esau rejected it. He sold his birthright just to satisfy his appetite. He sold his birthright for a pottage. He chose to do that. God had nothing to do with it. God did everything that He could to save Esau. But God also foreknew what He would do. But that does not mean that somehow or other God in His deity used all of that power against Esau. That conflicts with everything that is written in the Bible from beginning to end. God is not willing that any should perish. That included Esau. It included Pharaoh. It included Adolf Hitler. It included all those Democrats up there right now that are, that are thinking like animals, brute beasts, that could care less about the message of this book. But this is on their head, and they're going to pay for it. And so Revelation 19 is a picture of how that's going to happen. Um, now, I want to refresh our memories on some things that we touched on earlier, but I think it's appropriate to reflect on some of the teaching that we've 
uh, discovered in our studies of Revelation. So we're basically kind of going back to Revelation. I'd like to finish up the book. Uh, and hopefully we're not going to spend a whole lot longer on it. Uh, but when we come to the book of the Revelation, there are just a number of things throughout Scripture that come together to help us understand something of God's timetable. This is one of the things that we've been studying now for uh, several weeks is the question of the disciples in Matthew 24, uh, when are you going to come back? What's going to be the end of the age or the end of the world? When are you going to come back? And so we discovered that God did not rebuke them for asking the question. As a matter of fact, uh, he dedicated two chapters, chapter 24 and 25 right there in Matthew, to and answering the question. He sure did with specific information. Well, in our studies the other week, we talked about the, the parable of the fig tree. And we noted how uh, the Lord referred to seasons, times and seasons in that parable. And this is how God uses prophecy to address prophecy in a twofold manner. So that uh, he's addressing uh, what would be his bride, the church, which the disciples would become members of beginning at Pentecost. That's when the church was born, was at Pentecost. So the disciples going to him and asking him, when are you going to come back? He had to answer them in terms of the distinctiveness between the church and what was going to happen in the future of Israel. And so he splits his revelation in two different directions. And if you do not understand that, there's a lot of the New Testament you're not going to get right. But right there in Matthew 24... The Lord splits his answer in two different directions. One direction is going to address the answer to the question, when are you going to come back to the church? And it has to do with times and seasons. Times and seasons. And there's a difference between the phrase times and seasons and day and hour. Day and hour is always language that applies to Israel. Times and seasons is a phrase that always applies to the church. And so you have the parable of the fig tree. And when you see the leaves are yet tender... The Lord said, you know that summer is nigh. The word summer is, has to do with times and seasons. How can we miss that? Well, by reading too fast, you can miss that. But God makes it very clear on two occasions to the disciples that times and seasons is what you need to be thinking about in the church as the bride of Christ. And the second time it's mentioned uh, outside of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is Acts chapter 1 where the disciples are coming to the Lord just before He ascends into heaven, and they ask Him a second time, when are you going to come back? And He answered them. He didn't answer concerning the Jews, Israel, actually, even though they were Jews. 
God separated the disciples from Israel at Pentecost. And so the disciples, along with the Apostle Paul, are part of the bride of Christ. And so in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, they're asking the Lord when he's going to come back. And he tells them that it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has placed in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And so the Lord said, in effect, right now you do not know the times and seasons. Because God has reserved all of that information within himself and he's not going to tell anybody. But there's going to come a time that he will enable you to know the times and seasons. Not the day and hour, but the times and seasons. And again, he was talking to the church. And it's after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Well, the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It is the Spirit of the Father. And so when the Holy Spirit descended and indwelt the body of Christ, the ability to know the times and seasons was then available to us. And that's exactly what it teaches. I I would encourage you to go and read and study very carefully Acts chapter 1. And I'm telling you, you will see this. It is there. It's God's Word. It's not mine. It's not some private interpretation. That's what He said. He said it. We can know the times and seasons. So, in Matthew 24, the Lord has divided the prophecy to answer the question concerning the church and when he's coming back. And what we look for is the times and seasons. And so that's what we're doing at Calvary Memorial Church. We're studying the times. And this is why it's so important to remember that it has to do with the fig tree, which is Israel. It teaches us that in a number of different passages in the Old Testament. We won't go into those now. Uh, but especially Joel, I think it's chapter 1 or 2 in there, where God makes it clear that Israel is his fig tree. But you remember when the Lord was on his way to the cross and he comes up on a fig tree and... He's looking for something to eat, which carries the idea of fellowship. Something that he can feed on, fellowship on that will make him stop hungering. Well, he's hungry. And he comes to the fig tree if perchance he might find figs there on, but there are none there. All there is is fig leaves. Fig leaves. That took us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves. Fig leaves. Folks, there's nothing about fig leaves. The works of man's hands, which was what Adam and Eve did, as the works of their own hands, try, trying to cover their shame. God cannot feed upon the works of men. No fellowship in that. He's looking for fruit. Fruit. And when he came up on that fig tree, on his way to the cross, he saw the fig tree, a type of Israel, and it had nothing but leaves. And so God cursed it. And when the disciples came back by, a short time later, it had withered up. It had withered up. This was God's symbolism of the destruction that was fixing to take place as a result of them 
denying him, rejecting him, crucifying him. Israel would become cursed with their own free will. They chose their own death in choosing his death. And so the fig tree is now a symbol to the church. We're supposed to keep our eyes on the, on the nation of Israel. And the signs of the times as it relates to that nation, the fig tree. And he said that tree is going to come back to life. Even after he cursed it, it's going to come back to life. Well, he cut it off, but he left the roots in the ground. And in 1948, Israel began to uh, sprig and grow branches out of the ground. And the Lord said, when you see the leaves are yet tender, my answer to your question, when am I coming back? He said, when you see that, you're going to know when it comes to times and seasons, I'm at the door. I'm fixing to come back. In 1948, that happened. That was when the leaves were yet tender. Israel since that time has flourished and grown and has irrigated the land and is now producing fruit that they're exporting all over the world. And the Lord said, this generation shall not pass away till all is fulfilled. This generation that sees this. And we looked into that a little bit. And we learned that a generation, and everywhere that you studied in Scripture, has to do with that generation that sees what's going on, not dying out until it's all done. We are that generation sitting here at Calvary Memorial Church this morning. We're the generation that has seen the fig tree come back to life. And God said it. I didn't say it. He said it. This generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. And so... Uh, we're looking at the times and seasons. And that brings us to a timetable where in our past studies it was pointed out from Scripture a number of things that would be indicative of the fact that this generation is fixing to see the Lord come back. And so the order of things that are to occur as it's recorded in Scripture is first of all the rapture. The rapture could be any minute. It could be any moment. Jesus Christ is going to come. He's going to call the church out. The very next thing that's going to happen according to Scripture is Ezekiel 38 and 39. Because at that point, um, God is going to intervene in human affairs in a manner that it becomes unmistakable that it's Him that has intervened. We, we saw a little thing, there's a little thing on the news the other day when uh, Queen Elizabeth passed away that... Um, place where she was when she died it was re reported that a double rainbow appeared right over uh, where she was when she died I don't know what that meant I don't want to read into it anything uh, that may not be the case we know what the Bible says about the rainbow and the promise 
that God's wrath has has passed, and uh, it was a sign to Noah and to his family that God would never judge the world again with water. And they were able, in a better way, with that symbolism in the sky of that rainbow, of entering into the promise of God, which they had already done. Uh, they built an ark. And they entered into it. And that, that ark was a type of Jesus Christ. And they were safe inside of that ark. And God separated them from the wrath that He was going to pour out upon this world. And uh, so that rainbow was, was symbolic of, of that. Now whether that was some kind of little token uh, concerning where uh, Queen Elizabeth is right now, I have no idea. I do not know. But I know that there have been a number of reports that she had a clear testimony concerning what she was trusting as her hope forever. And that was Jesus Christ and the salvation that He provided. And I also uh, heard that it was reported that she said if there's anything that she wished she could do, it would be to take the crown off of her head and lay it at the feet of Jesus Christ. Well, that sounds pretty good to me as somebody that may have some understanding. But there are some things that characterize what is going on over there in England right now that are very disturbing in that... Uh, I think with the wording of uh, King uh, Charles III, uh, there's going to be no religious discrimination whatsoever. And I believe that his wording, whatever he's saying right now, uh, is very consistent with what we read in Revelation chapter 17 when it comes to the ecumenical movement. Uh, when Queen Elizabeth was living, she made it very clear that of the religions of the world, she was a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian. I think that that testimony is going to fade into the background. And what's going to be put into the foreground, right out of England, and we can watch it, and you, I think we'll see that it's true. According to Bible prophecy, the world church is going to come together as one. But folks, let me tell you something. Things that are different are not the same. And Christianity is different from Roman Catholicism. It's different from the Muslim religion. The one thing that Simon Greenleaf made very clear in his testimony about evidence is that the Bible is written in such clarity that it destroys every other religion in the world but this one. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And it's the gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. So all of this goodwill toward other religions and trying to bring about unity in the face of all this diversity is nothing but wicked humanism. And I project that England is going to go that direction. And they're going to, I mean, listen, they've got Muslim mayors. I mean, they've got Muslims by the thousands that have infiltrated their government. And you're going to see a massive problem with King Charles trying to uh, keep peace and keep the kingdom together. Uh, you start rocking the boat when it comes to differences in religious beliefs and you've got war. 
And this book is full of it. If you take a, a stand for Jesus Christ, the world will hate you. They will hate you. They will kill you. And we're seeing that in our society today. This mixture. This mixture. Uh, we saw a little bit of it at the thing down here yesterday. Brother Beatty came and and the music that was in that thing was uh, just uh, painful. Painful. You can't mix what is wrong with what is right. You cannot do that. But people do not want to take a clear stand over what is right. They want to mix it up as though somehow or other God's going to understand. <laughs> no, He is not. And so the future of Calvary Memorial Church has to do with whether or not we're going to stay the course and not compromise. Wow. Anyway, the Russian invasion, there are several things here. I'll come back next week. Our time is gone. I want to go over at least ten things that characterize the fact that the Lord's fixing to come back. So we'll we'll look at this next week. Our time is gone. Okay. Brother George, you're back there on the back row. Would you dismiss us, brother, please? Yeah.